And today we are finishing off the third um, Sunday in, well, we've been going through Romans for months now. And so what we're going to be doing is finishing off this section on unity in Romans chapter 14 and 15. And we're going to be finishing off in Romans 15. And so let me give just a kind of brief overview of where we've been so far. We've been talking about how to unify Jews and Gentiles, those who are Jewish with those who are not Jewish, Gentiles are those who are not Jewish. And that, that unifying principle is this idea of righteousness by faith, which can bring together different ethnic groups, we can, which can bring together different religious groups. And all of that is so fundamental and important, even in our culture today. So we're looking at ancient wisdom that helps unify cultures and ethnic groups, which is something that we should not take for granted and is absolutely as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. And as I've been thinking about this, I've also observed some things in our culture that I think is, is, are, are interesting. And as a, as a church that's probably maybe 40% single, I've also noticed some trends um, when it comes to the church's focus on marriage and children. I know most churches focus on um, getting married and also about having kids. You know, we have the special seating, we have a nursery, we all want to accommodate children. And yet sometimes I recognize we don't give enough attention to those who are single. Um, and so I've noticed that um, when it comes to this topic, it can be difficult in this... Hi, James. Um... <laughs> yeah, I know, I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> I've noticed that it's difficult to meet people. I've noticed it's difficult to meet people, and it's difficult as a single person to meet someone who is compatible. And however, one trend I've observed in my, I don't know, maybe 30 years working with young people is that sometimes people are quick, those who are single are quick to write off potential romantic partners, okay, quick to write off. And so for example, there might be differences in attachment style. He's avoidant, I'm anxious, um, or he's an Enneagram 5, and I'm an Enneagram 7, um, or he has, she has short hair, and I don't like short hair, or he likes DC, and I like Marvel. Um, and so all these, these factors that can seem like really significant differences, I wonder if they're really that big of a deal, but nothing really pains me more than the dreaded, quote-unquote, theological differences. Theological differences. And the reason why that bothers me so much is that within certain educated and Bible-centric circles, including like a church like ours, uh, people can evaluate one another based on their responses about theology. Okay, for example, these are some of the questions I've heard people ask. When's the last time you thought about John Calvin? Or what excites you about biblical inerrancy? Okay, I've never heard anyone ask those questions. Okay, let's be totally honest. I've never heard anyone, I've never heard anyone ask those questions, but I do have this sense where I've heard people go out on dates or get to know someone and say, can you believe this person said X, Y, or Z about God and about God's sovereignty or about his word or about complementarianism or something like some kind of theological topic? And I just think it's kind of wild to me. It's kind of wild to me. Now, I'm not saying theology doesn't matter, but I've noticed kind of in a broader sense not just in regards to dating, that we tend to categorize and judge people based on what they state they believe in. And so this is a broader problem in all of our culture, but I see it in particular with regards to dating and with regards to the, with the stated theology that we have. And so for instance, number one, our concept of what constitutes 
acceptable behavior is very narrow because of our increased knowledge. So with things like attachment styles and all these different, with the Enneagram, the more we know, the more we're looking for specific language that the other person is gonna say and kind of meet our criteria. So that's the first thing. The second thing I've noticed in regards to theology is then we can spiritualize our rejection of the person. If that person doesn't talk about God's sovereignty the way we like to talk about it, then we could just say, hey, you know what? They don't meet our criteria. We're being spiritual by rejecting them. And again, I'm not saying those things are not important. This is what I'm saying. When, as we get into the book of, as, we're, as we are in this section of Romans today, Romans 14 and 15, the emphasis isn't about your knowledge. Okay, the emphasis isn't about your knowledge. Because up till now, Romans is all about what righteousness and faith mean. But starting in chapter 12, it's not just about what, the, what knowledge represents, what it means to know and experience God's love and have righteousness by faith through what Christ accomplished for us. It's also about how you live that out. And so the question that I want to address here is the way, you, the way you observe someone's behavior is just as important, if not more important, than his or her stated beliefs. You can tell someone's theology by what he or she does. And that is no, that is not, that is, there's no way more important you can see that in terms of unity within the body of Christ. The most important aspect of how you can see someone's behavior is how they are united and love other Christians. That's the way faith is demonstrated. And that's what Paul has been doing in this section. And so we're going to dive in. We're going to dive into Romans 15. We've been talking about not passing judgment. We've been talking about different foods. We talked about food right now. And so I'm going to read chapter 15 of Romans 1 through 7. We're going to cover 1 through 7. And my structure today is what it means to build up your neighbor, what it means to endure in hope, and what it means to receive encouragement from the scriptures. And it's all in the context of loving other believers. <clears throat> okay, Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is his concluding statement that started in chapter 14. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the passage we're going to be talking about today. And that's where all the belief about what Christ has done for us, that's where this is where the rubber meets the road and where you actually see it worked out in someone's life and behavior. And so Paul's emphasis here is if you understand Christ's love, then you will love as Christ does. If you understand the love of Christ, you will love as Christ does. And that's, that's the premise. That's verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed Okay, so this first idea 
is building up your neighbor. And as I mentioned last week, and I'm going to go back to it, verse 1 says, we who are strong. Okay, it gives this assumption that we who are strong. And so this idea here is this assumption of being strong, I think is super important that Paul makes because what he recognizes is that most people will think they're strong and then do nothing. Okay, and then do nothing. But the reason Paul says we who are strong is the strong person in this case has an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please, our, not to please ourselves. So here, strength is not a status. It's not a social status. We think of it as being higher or above other people. But Paul's point here is you are not above another person if you are strong. You're not above another person. You actually have an obligation. It's the strong that has an obligation. We think of the weak person having the obligation to serve, but in this case, it's the strong that has an obligation to serve. And so here's the reality. The person who is strong goes first. And most people don't want to go first. I was talking with Micah this past week about um, friendships and, and initiative. And I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but in most relationships, most people don't want to initiate. Most people do not want to take the first step. It's way easier for someone else to take the first step. It's work to take the first step. And I think a lot of us think, well, if people like us or people want to be with us, they will take the first step with us. But that's actually not, not what Paul's saying, saying here. He's saying, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Because you know what? Those who initiate are the ones who are looking for to make something happen, right? They're, they're, they're doing something to, allow, to help get to know people and to accommodate others. And so as the strong person, it is your responsibility as the one who is mature to take the first step, to initiate in relationships. Because only through initiative, you even learn what someone else's, for example, dietary restrictions are. It's only if you take the first step that you find out. If Peter had not obeyed the vision that he had seen and gone to Cornelius' house, this is back in the Acts, Acts chapter 10, if he had not taken that initiative, he would not have recognized that God does not make a person unclean, that God makes all people clean. And so it starts with initiative. And in verse 2, it gives us a specific, because it says not to please ourselves in verse 1. But in verse 2, it says, let us please his neighbor for his good. It's not about catering to people's whims or preferences. It is to build him up. Your purpose is to build up your neighbor. And that means being able to go first, and it means being able to offer yourself and so I don't, know, I don't know what Thanksgiving looked like for you. I know um, in our house, it, it means a lot of work, especially for my wife. And, um, and we had some people over, had some people over from church. And um, one of the things that I did, I think the night before, is I told my family, honey, I'm going to give you two hours of effort, okay? I'm going to give you two hours of effort on Thanksgiving Day. And then my, my kids were great. Like I think Caleb said, wow, that is so generous of you, Dad. Okay, with that kind of tone. And then my other kids were like, yeah, usually you wait till the very end to jump in and say what kind of help, you know, to offer my help. The end of all the cooking, then I'll come in and go, hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm here to help. I'm happy to, to do whatever it takes. Because um, I know for me, it is not easy to initiate. It is not easy to plan ahead. It is not easy to take the first step. But that's what Paul is saying here, to build up your neighbor for his good. And this isn't just about family. This is about people who are in proximity with you. Because it says neighbor. It says, let each of us please his neighbor. And up to now, what Paul has been emphasizing is he's been talking about um, other believers. But here, he talks about neighbor. And so then the question is, who is your neighbor? 
Who is your neighbor? And I want to give a very simple definition. It's the people that you have proximity with that you see on a regular basis. And I mean that both virtually and I mean that both physically. But I do want to emphasize there is something powerful about the people you see in person. Okay, there is something powerful about that because they can love you and you can love them in a way that is totally different from those who you only see virtually. Um, I'm part of a workout group and in this workout group we did, I was trying to scroll on my Bible, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> it just, it just, it didn't work. I'll do it here, okay. Um, <clears throat> Oh, I was in, I'm in a workout group, and when I played in a turkey bowl, I, I, stray, I pulled a hamstring. Um, my neighbor, who lives close to me, offered to help me. And he actually can, because he lives close by. Some of you, if you live far away, whether you're in Millbrae or Hayward, you're not going to be able to do that much for me, because you're not close enough. And so there's something about being close, to, like physically proximate to a neighbor, that makes a difference in the way that you help that person in his or her life. So I just encourage you, if you don't have a regular pattern, you need to locate your neighbors. Okay, so the first thing I would say in terms of application, we can even start with that, is to locate your neighbor. And the easiest place to look is, number one, where you live. The people that you live with. Okay, that is your neighbor. Okay, that is your neighbor. The people that you live in the same household with, you have an obligation to build that person up. And then second the people that you see on a regular basis. Some of you have, I love those of you who have a regular like haunt. You're, you're a regular at some place, whether it's 24 hour fitness or AM craft, you have a place, a third space that you go to that you are a regular at. And that, that includes work. That, those are your neighbors. Your school, those are your neighbors. Those are the people you have regular interaction with. Those are the people that you are called, that God is saying you are to build up, to please for, for their good. And then verse 3 gives a specific. It says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Okay, so this is, the first point was to build those up. And now we're going to talk about what it means to have endurance. And here, as Austin read earlier, Paul is quoting from the Psalms. And so now we're going to take a journey into Psalms which we already have briefly. And I'm going to read from Psalm, Psalm 69, and I want to give some context with verse 4, um, with 4 through 9. Okay, I'm going to give some context. And here, the psalmist is lamenting his oppressed condition, and he's asking the Lord to deliver him by severely judging those around him. And by the way, when it says this was written for the former instruction, one of the things you need to be clear about is that there is no New Testament when Paul's writing. Right? The New Testament wasn't written yet or was in the process of being written as Paul was writing Romans. So when Paul is talking about what was written in the former days, he has to be talking about the Hebrew scriptures, which is the Old Testament. And so he's quoting from Psalm 69. And now I'll read from verse 4. I think I, have the, I, think I should have the slides. Um, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What did I not steal must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Okay, now I have verse 6 here. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts, 
Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So I want you to notice a couple things as you're reading through this psalm. That in the very beginning of the psalm, it's about sinking into mire. I didn't read this part. It's about deep waters, about this image of drowning and falling into quicksand. And psalms are beautiful ways of capturing imagery and that kind of poetry. But then it transitions, because in verse 4, it talks about those who hate him, those who would destroy him, those who would attack David with lies. Um, and then in verse 6, it talks about being put to shame. It talks about dishonor. It talks about reproach. It talks about being a stranger. It, and then lastly, it talks about reproach. So everything going on in this psalm is about social pain. Okay, social pain. Oftentimes in our Christian life, or oftentimes within Christian circles, we emphasize the physical suffering that Jesus went through. That he was beaten, that he was flogged, <clears throat> that he was stripped naked, that he was nailed to the cross, that he was poked in the side. We emphasize all the different dimensions of Jesus' physical pain. But as you go through the Psalms, and this is, quote, this is talking about Jesus, right? This is a prophecy about Jesus. And the, the Psalms that talk about Jesus actually emphasize his, uh, the pain of humiliation, the pain of being alone, the pain of betrayal, the pain of, the pain of being a stranger to others, the pain of being insulted, the, the reproach of those that reproach God that have fallen on Jesus. And so what Paul is, the reason Paul is quoting this here is that as you love people and seek unity, you should expect it to hurt. You should expect it to be suffering. You should expect social pain in the experience of loving people and seeking after unity. And so what Paul is saying here is that as you do bear the pain of unity, and that can be from eating foods that you don't like or restricting yourself from foods, which Paul has just been talking about in Romans 14, that Jews, as part of their restrictions, as part of the divine command that they received, cannot eat certain meats, right? And we restrict ourselves on behalf of those who are weaker or weaker in faith, on their behalf in order to build them up because that was part of their divine command and what it means to be Jewish. And so what Paul is saying here is you should expect to suffer for loving other people and that is part of the cost you pay for unity. And what that means is, Paul has this prayer in verse four, for whatever was written for our instruction, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, can we put that up verse four, for that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay. So there's two things that he's saying, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's 15 verse 4. And so what am I saying here? Social pain is real. Okay. Social pain is real. And so when it comes to going first, and initiating when it comes to anything that happens in church right like the greeting time i know some of you feel an exquisite pain 
when it comes to the greeting time because it's like this shallow conversation. And that's why we have a pre-sermon uh, greeting prompt so you can have a more substantive conversation. But I just want you to know that social pain is real and to expect it. Because Jesus Christ suffered in social pain and humiliation and disgrace. You're not necessarily suffering in humiliation and disgrace, but you will definitely suffer much awkwardness. And that is a type of social pain a lot of us don't have much tolerance for. And frankly, we can get away from and we can avoid. But Paul is saying here, it is a necessary pain. And you know what? And, and it's necessary in a way because you need endurance. The word for endurance also has to do with physical endurance. But he's saying you need to have social endurance. And so here's, here's what I, how I want you to think about this. Okay? Here's what I want you to think about this. I want you to approach social interaction. Okay, I want you to think about this way, the way that you would approach exercise, okay, physical exercise, meaning let it hurt so good. Okay? You know when you work out, okay, most of the time, I know there's a physical therapist here, um, you, know, you don't want it to hurt so much, but you know that some discomfort, some level of discomfort when you exercise is really important because that's how you get stronger. Okay, that is how you develop your muscles. There's a I don't want to go. I, I don't, I'm not qualified to speak to the science of it, okay? But there is something that's happening in the midst of your physical discomfort to help you grow stronger and become more physically healthy. In the same way, when you initiate, okay, let's say you text someone, and I know the lag time between when you text someone to invite them to do something, that lag time between they, how, how long you have to wait for them to respond, for you, respond to you is painful. I know that waiting period is painful, and you, you might have a whole lot of things going through your head, like are, are they really busy? Do they not care? Are they evaluating other options right now? You know, how come they haven't gotten back to me, right? That, that whole thing, I know that plays out in your head. Let it hurt so good, okay? Let it hurt so good, because the social pain is real. And you may be driving to life group, and you had a long day, and you're tired, and you don't want to be around people. Let it hurt so good. That is part of the social discomfort. Or you have a conversation with someone and you don't feel like you connected. Let it hurt so good. Because Jesus bore the reproach of all of us on himself. Because Jesus bore that for us. He experienced social pain, humiliation, and disgrace. We can experience some social discomfort, some awkwardness in order to love others. And also in order for us to experience love. And so that's where endurance comes in. Psalm 69 is about endurance. Psalm 69 is also, in verse 4, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. And so before I talk about the scriptures, let's, let's just talk about what is this hope, okay? What is this hope? Because I think the, the indication that we get um, is probably that um, if we initiate, there's going to be a good result. People are going to respond to us, Right? Oftentimes, our hope is in some kind of result. And so we need to define what it means then in verse 4 for there to be hope. And the only way we, the, the best way, the most important way we define a term in the Bible is by looking at its context, by looking around to see what it means. So let's go to verse 5. Let's see what it means. <clears throat> May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
Everything in this about hope, it doesn't seem to actually talk that specifically about hope, but the idea here sounds like he gives a prayer, so it's the God of encouragement, endurance and encouragement, and then he says to grant you to live in such harmony in accord with Christ Jesus. So the opportunity you have is to be able to become like Christ. That is the hope. The hope is you get to be more like Jesus. It doesn't say you get to be happier. It doesn't say people get to respond. It, it, the hope is you get to be more like Jesus and that there is unity. The hope is in the unity in the body, and that is also resembling Jesus. And so when we talk about what does it mean to have hope, that we might have hope, it's that you become more like Christ. That is the goal. Two weeks ago, I spoke at a conference in Portland on discipleship as friendship. It was an Acts 29 conference. And one of my points in the conference, in this talk, was that as you make disciples, you share your heart with other people, including the people in your congregation. You view them as friends. And that's actually hard for a lot of pastors, including me. Because what can happen as you share your heart is, and this has happened to me too, people can use the things that you say um, against me, right? People can use the things that I share. I, I may be vulnerable, and then people use it against me like, hey, you know what? Um, you said that as a pastor. I, I had a couple friends who I shared some things, um, very like confidential information, and then when I invited them to be part of the church plant, they said, hey, you know what? I think you shared some things that um, I felt uncomfortable about, and um, I would like to not be part of the, the church plant because of those things you shared, right? And so some of you were thinking, well, Fred, I guess you made a mistake. You shouldn't have talked about or disclosed those things to someone who is a, a future congregant. And yet I look at the example of Jesus, the example of the reproaches of those who reproached, of those who reproached you fell on me. I looked at the example of Jesus and how he opened up to his disciples, including on the very night of his arrest and betrayal, and how he asked them to pray for him. He told his disciples, Peter, James, and John, that my soul is sorrowful beyond, the, beyond death. And he was free in that moment to show his greatest vulnerability and then also experience their neglect and even betrayal. And I think, you know what? Suffering for Jesus is becoming like Jesus. There's a fellowship in suffering like him. It's actually super important. The way that we become like Jesus is suffering like him. This is a tremendous privilege. Throughout all of Scripture, there is this idea that if you suffer on behalf of what is most important, that you'll be rewarded. There's a, there's a principle within the New Testament that suffering and persecution bears much reward as a follower of Jesus. And so we have a privilege as his people to suffer the way he did by opening ourselves up to others and experiencing pain in the process of loving people, in the process of opening up. That is a tremendous privilege. And so then let's explore more what this prayer is saying in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Because let's just pause there. Paul is repeating the idea from verse 4. He's talking about endurance, and he's talking about encouragement. And then he says in verse 5, the only way you do this is through God's empowerment. And so he prays, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, grant you, allow you, empower you 
to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. This is the way Jesus lived. You do likewise. You do the same. And then in verse 6, it says that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does anyone remember, there's maybe three of you, the song One Voice by Hosanna? Let us be one voice that glorifies your... No, nobody knows. Renee, maybe? No? Thank you, Trevor. Yes, and Wendy. Yes. Cheesiest song ever. I didn't know it came from the Bible, but it actually does. It, came, it didn't come from John 17. It actually came from Romans 15. This is this idea of one voice. And this idea of one voice has to refer to singing. It has to refer to unity. And this idea of being in one congregation together with, with Jews and Gentiles, with people from different ethnic groups. That is, what, that is the vision that Paul is describing here. And it is super cheesy and sentimental, but this is a, a, an image that is meant to motivate us to be like Christ because that was the picture he's drawing for us. And so where does that encouragement come from? That encouragement comes from the scriptures. Verse 4, the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. Now, I know many of you have a Bible reading plan, and I want to give you a, a scaffolded way to think about this. Now, first of all, I think most of you are in life groups. We've been reading through the book of Romans. We're almost finished. I want to encourage you to continue to read the Word of God, to read the Bible in the context of your life groups. The Word of God was meant to be read in community. It was meant to be read together. Okay, we actually weren't meant to read it solo. We're meant to read it in community because, in fact, throughout most of history, people couldn't read, and it had to be read in community. It was read aloud in order for people to hear it together as one congregation. So I just encourage you to read the Bible in the context of community. Second, if you don't have your own individual prayer, your own individual reading habit, I'd encourage you to start with where Paul is referencing. Start with the Psalms, okay? You can read one Psalm a day. Read one Psalm a day. That is a prayer pattern I've had for a long time. I'm not doing it currently, but there's a prayer pattern I have for a long time. It is nourishing, and it is a way to receive encouragement from the scriptures because in the Psalms, you see David's prayer life before God and a tremendous diversity from it. And then one of our elders, Grant, has, I think he just finished. Did you just, you just finished? One more, one more, 150. He just finished 149. He's rewritten all 100, well, all except one of the Psalms, 149 of them. And that's the way he connects with God. You don't have to do the same project. I don't think he's writing it so that you have to do the same thing, but it is one way for him to connect with God, and that helps him to be able to read Scripture. And so I'd encourage you to have that practice of reading the Bible in community, and you can start with praying through the Psalms. All right, verse 7. In terms of encouragement, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this is the final closing point, because Romans 14.1 starts with this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And now it closes that whole section by saying, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this is where everything starts, is everything we do in the Christian life, we do in response to what Jesus did for us. You don't actually initiate anything in the Christian life. It's all, it's all responsive. And so as, as we enter into, we're going to do our open mic sharing today. 
you know, despite what Austin said last week. We're going to do our open mic sharing today. And so um, the question that we're going to talk about is, when do you find it hard to live in harmony with other Christians? Okay, when do you find it hard to live in harmony with other Christians? And then how is God calling you to seek unity in those areas? How is God calling you to seek unity in those areas? And um, as the speaker for today, I get to share first. Okay, I'll share first in terms of that sharing prompt. The toughest people in my life are those who I've known for a long time. Okay, that might be true for you too. You may even have seen them over Thanksgiving. They may be sitting next to you. Okay, and they're the people that I've had, they're people who I have known in terms of their struggles and the areas where I think they're working on, but that haven't changed. Okay, we all know people in our lives who've been known for a long time, and there's aspects of their life that we resent. And we have known those aspects for, for years, and then for some of us, for decades. And those are the people for me that are most difficult to live in harmony with because I think, what kind of progress are you making towards change? What kind of progress are you making? And so the encouragement that I receive from scriptures and the way that I want to love people, that, that, that's, I just really have a hard time. And I was recently very judgmental of someone, very, someone pretty close to me that I got to see. And so um, the way that I'm challenged is, the, the way that I respond to that person then is I avoid them. Okay, I avoid them. And I keep a certain distance. And I think what's tragic about keeping a distance from someone that you judge, you are judgmental of, is that you are never inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt. Because if they are changing, you don't know about that process of change. You don't know about the internal struggle the person's going to. You just get to stand at a distance and throw rocks. And so the way that I am learning, the way, the way I'm committed to, is to get, take a step closer. I don't know if I'm ready to run near the person that I'm judgmental of, but I can take a step closer. And that's what initiative means. I can take a step closer to that person. And the encouragement that I get from the scriptures, number one, the challenge of it, is whatever social pain that I want to experience is nothing compared to what Jesus experienced on the cross and his humiliation and his rejection and the insults. It's nothing. It's nothing. And yet the comfort that I receive from the scriptures is that there are so many aspects of my life that have not changed for years and for decades. And that, that, that may not. They actually may not change. And I'm coming to terms with that. I'm almost 50 years old. I'm coming to terms with aspects of my life that may never change. And the thing that I just cling to is the unconditional love of God and his ridiculous extravagant grace that loves me no matter what, that Christ would die for me and give his life on my behalf. And that same love that he gave for me, he gives to the people that I judge. And that is a tremendous and consistent comfort for me. So today, would you look to locate and build up your neighbor to welcome him or her as Christ has welcomed you? Would you receive the endurance and encouragement that comes from the scriptures for what Jesus has given us and through what has been revealed through the word of God? Would you love those who are different from you, whom you judge, and whom there are divide, dividing walls? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the way that you pursue us. You take the first step. You initiate with us. And Lord, um, whether we are single or married, 
whether we have young children. Um, Lord, we are all in different life stages, in um, socioeconomic stages. We come from different cultural backgrounds. Thank you, God, that your love can transcend them and that the process of unity is work and it is costly. And yet you bore that cost on yourself. And so, Lord, as we experience social pain, whether it's the awkwardness of initiative, experiencing rejection, disconnection, and loss, will we see in our effort to be strong and build others up that the pain draws us closer to you? So, Lord, would you empower us in endurance and encouragement to love as you do? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.